You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Well, I like skiing, I guess, because it's just a, it's a real free feeling when you're, when you're out there. You're on your own, uh, on the hill. The conditions change from day to day, sometimes from, from hour to hour. Um, you get to challenge yourself, uh, but it's the, the, you know, it's the speed a little bit, going down the hill, um, and you're surrounded by incredible scenery. But out west, you, you add the avalanche control piece to it, and that is actually a really, really neat um, aspect of the job and learning snow science. It's almost like archeology. span in the snow. I mean, you, you can if you dig a snow pit, you get to watch every you can see every every uh, weather event that has happened throughout the entire year. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love Mean Radio, show number two seventy one, Sugarloafing, airing for the first time on Sunday, November twenty seventh, two thousand sixteen. There are many ways to enjoy Sugarloaf, one of Maine's largest ski and snowboarding mountains. Today, we speak with Bruce Miles, president of the Sugarloaf Ski Club, about the Ski Skate program, which gives local children the opportunity to enjoy all that the resort has to offer. We also speak with Tom Fremont Smith, president of Winter Stick Snowboards. Thank you for joining us. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough, and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Within the last couple of years, I had the great privilege to write about the Sugarloaf Charity Summit and also interview people who are part of the Sugarloaf Charity Summit. Today we have Bruce Miles back with us again, um, and not only has he done great work with the Charity Summit, but he also is um, doing some good work with another program, the Ski Skate Program. He is the president of the Sugarloaf Mountain Ski Club, which helps support the Mountain Ski Skate Program which is more than 50 years old and allows students to rent ski equipment or skates and receive instruction from Sugarloaf personnel. Bruce first started teaching skiing and coaching at Sugarloaf in 1968 after graduating from South Portland High School. Thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me back. Now Sugarloaf seems to be in your blood. You've been doing this a really long time now. Well, my family, uh, when we started skiing at Sugarloaf was in 1961 and then a couple of years later we you know, leased a piece of land and built an A-frame, and I I kind of fell in love with it. And after I got out of high school, I lived there uh, for a year between high school and college, and taught skiing and coached ski racing, and um, then became a resident of the what was then Jerusalem Township, which later became Carabas Valley Town. What is it about skiing that really? got you interested? What is it about the feeling, the emotion? Why do you personally like skiing and ski racing so much? Well, I like skiing, I guess, because it's just a, it's a real free feeling when you're, when you're out there. You're on your own, uh, on the hill. The conditions change from day to day, sometimes from, 
from hour to hour um, you get to challenge yourself uh, but it's the, the you know it's the speed a little bit going down the hill um, and you're surrounded by incredible scenery too so you're outdoors and you know in the cold fresh air of the winter um, and I just uh, I don't know I was uh, my dad uh, started me skiing uh, and uh, he just he had a passion for it himself and and you know pass that on to me you've been a very active part of the sugarloaf community for a while is there something special about sugarloaf as a mountain that has drawn and kept you there yeah and i don't want to sound like i'm, I'm bragging about sugarloaf but the sugarloafer uh, experience has, has got more than just skiing it's, it's really has a soul the sugarloaf community is a very uh giving and caring community as you have learned from the work that's done on the charity summit you know? that's just one of the things that you know that goes on up there that uh, uh, it's just a very giving community uh, but also it's it's Sugarloaf itself is you have to go a little bit further to get there you, it's not in your backyard like some of the areas in the southern part of Maine um, so you got to really want to go there and because of that we have a lot of people who come up uh, for the weekend or for and for the vacation weeks uh, they don't just drive up for the day so they buy season passes uh, as opposed to just day tickets so you get to know people so it's like a big family you see you see people you know you know at lunch or in the afternoon or, or in the lift lines so it's not like you're skiing with 15,000 people that, that you don't know so it, it is really a, uh, a sugarloafer community you know that's that's the term you're a sugarloafer if you're up there because you've been skiing for a big chunk of your life, have you noticed as a person an evolution in the way that you approach skiing? Well, it's a lot easier to learn now for people. Uh, you know, the, the equipment changes have been the biggest. That and, and the lift changes. Uh, back in the, in the 60s when the mountain only had T-bars, uh, if you got eight runs in from top to bottom in a day, you'd be doing well because uh, the lifts were slow and and um, and you waited a long time in line now with the high speed lifts um, it's uh you can get four runs in in an hour uh, on one of the you know high speed detachable lifts um, but the equipment is is made it so much easier for a person to learn to ski no matter what their age is it's just not in the old days people used to ski on skis that were at least a foot longer than their height and now uh, the skis are much shorter they have more of what they call a side cut which makes them easier to turn the boots are much more comfortable uh, than they used to be and the, and the clothing is, is lighter and warmer so um, you know so the experience of, of being out there is, is uh, more readily uh, learned by people you know uh, but but the experience is still the same whether you're on you know new new equipment or old equipment or whatever getting out there and and being outdoors and, and gliding down the mountain you know to your the best of your ability um, is still the same as it always was is there a difference in the way that you um, teach skiing today versus back then well you know back when I first started teaching it was uh, it was really uh, it was a, a bunch of movements that you had to learn that were very uh, I don't want to say dog dogma of skiing but there were uh, movements that you learned that were they were a little they were tied to the equipment you had the long skis and um, 
it took a person a while to master some of the early early moves in order to you know they could probably take lessons for a couple of weeks or more and still not get to experience going to the top of the mountain because they weren't ready now now with the uh, new equipment um, you can in a in a couple of days you could be skiing down from the top of the mountain on a you know on an intermediate trail um, but the way you teach really hasn't changed I think you know teaching anything any sport is it's a lot of uh, you know personality involved and and uh, being able to communicate and it's all about communication skills to your student uh, to help them you know reach their comfort level and, and show them how to attain you know the moves they want to make you know and how about approaching uh, teaching a really young child versus teaching an adult who hasn't skied before teaching young child is much easier because because they number one the most kids don't have fear fear is is learn is a learned thing right you know you touch something that's hot and all of a sudden you learn not to touch it again but the first time you don't know so you just reach out so kids uh you know they 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 learn quickly uh, they have you know most of them have good balance they aren't they aren't too worried about what they're going to look like um they aren't worried about falling they seem to you know fall and pick themselves up and don't get too upset um and you can you can teach kids without talking much. You know, you just you just show them something, uh, you know, and say follow me or do this, and they usually will try to mimic. They always like to mimic what you're doing, no matter what it is. As you know, you know, if you say something, all of a sudden two days later the, the kid might repeat what you said because they heard it and they remembered it. And uh, so it's so it's really easier to teach a kid, I think, to uh, to ski or snowboard. Um, than an adult but saying that um, it's I feel that it's easier to teach a uh, I don't want to say non-athletic person sometimes because skiing is a technique sport uh, and not necessarily a muscle sport um, if you learn how to ski you know technically correct it makes it easier on you and, and you are less tired at the end of the day because you're using your your whole frame as opposed to you know using muscles to to make it all happen but uh, adults do want instruction usually they want to be explained they want things explained to them you know why do you want me to do it this way or you know why you know why can't I do that whereas kids don't really get at that level young young kids it's just more of a they try it do you still have um people who continue to ski in their later years. We've had a lot of, I have patients and they, they worry, I'm gonna break a bone, I'm gonna break a hip. Um, but then I have other patients who, it doesn't seem to bother them. They can be 80 years old and they can be out there every single day. Um, what's your observation? Well, my observation was, uh, is that uh, in the last 20, 25 years, a lot of people uh, have ditch the idea of going south for the winter and they're staying and, and doing something more active and I noticed that uh, my wife and I moved away for five years from 91 to 96 and when we came back um, I did notice there were a lot more retirees skiing at Sugarloaf and I, a lot of it is the equipment uh, they, they find the equipment so much easier to use now but I think that people are are retiring more active anyway now and the people have skied most of their lives so they have a comfort zone with skiing 
and uh, there's a lot of uh, camaraderie and social aspect. In the morning, at about the lift opens at 8.30, the main lift at Sugarloaf. Usually by about 10 minutes past 8, there's a line of people there waiting. And those people, this is during the week, the Monday to Friday crowd. Those people probably are 75% retirees. And so they're, they're over 60. Uh, quite a few, many of them are in their 70s, and quite a few are in their 80s. Um, you know, and so it's, they like the active lifestyle. Uh, they're not ready to go down and, and you know, play shuffleboard and, and uh, go to the early bird specials in Florida, <laughs> which is great. You know, it's really, I love seeing it. We have a, a group, we have a group of people at the, uh, in the ski club that we call the Cardiac Club. And that was started about, oh gosh, probably 40 years ago now. And, and we were all in our late 20s and 30s then. Um, and we call it the Cardiac Club just because, you know, we were a bunch of, we weren't old by any means, but we, we weren't the young hotshot ski racers and stuff. So we started this group within the ski club that, that has, uh, they meet uh, on Saturday mornings, get together, uh, ski together, and then we socialize afterwards. And, and many of our members of the Cardiac Club now are in their early 80s, late 70s. I'm on the young end. I'm 67. Uh, but it's a it's a great group, and um, it's and they it, they're tough people. They they love to go, and they, and they push themselves, you know, and, and they get that you know competitive spirit amongst themselves. The reason that I'm interested in how long people ski is that your program, the the ski skate program, you're not just setting kids up for the short term. If you can get kids out there, they could be doing what you're doing at age 67 and still ski. And they could be having um, great times with their peers and they could be maybe living longer possibly. And if not living longer, at least they could be enjoying the lives that they have in their later years. Absolutely. Skiing is a lifelong sport. And it's like any sport. They, they say, you know, they say you shouldn't wait to learn how to play golf because it's easy to learn when you're younger. And you, you know, so it's like that with skiing. You know, you if you start any sport younger, uh, it's easy to learn, and it is a lifelong sport. You you don't need four other people uh, to play a pickup game of basketball or or play a football or whatever. But skiing is something you can do by yourself or with a friend, and you can keep doing it no matter what age. Um, and to get the basics down so you have a comfort level with it uh, when you're young, that's great. Um, so, yeah, I'm hoping that um, that these young kids that are in the program, that some of them will stick with it for the rest of their lives and be involved in the industry, too. Uh, become coaches or ski instructors or or lift, uh, lift mechanics or whatever, you know, groomers. Most of the people who work in the industry do ski or ride, you know, snowboards. Um, so I know in my own case, uh, you know, I started skiing at a very young age, and um, and it just it changed the direction of my life. It uh, introduced me to uh, a whole different uh, culture, I guess, or a whole different uh, uh, group of uh, people uh, that I wouldn't have met if I just stayed in South Portland and you know uh, worked down here. And uh, it's just in, in the tra- you know. It's the skiing world is not a, a huge world. It, it's but it, the people are connected. Like I can go, 
if I go out west to Aspen or Vale or someplace, chances are pretty good if I'm there a couple of days, I'm going to run into somebody that knows somebody that I know that skis at Sugarloaf. And so it's, it's, a, it's, you know, it's that type of a world. When I lived, we lived in Europe from 91 to 96, and I could ski over there in the Alps, and, and I would, if I was there for a week, I certainly would run into somebody that has skied at Sugarloaf at one point or another or skied in Maine. Uh, so it's a small world, but it, it, but you make these contacts, you know, and it's it's a uh, it's a great great family. So tell me about the ski skate program. It's been in existence for more than fifty years, and what you're doing is trying to make it possible for kids who live locally to enjoy the sport, essentially. Yes, yeah, so the ski skate program started out basically uh, in the mid '60s. Um, the uh, Current well at the time the president of the Sugarloaf Ski Club was a guy named G. Norton Luce, and his his wife was very active in the ski club too, and they were living in in uh, what was then called Sugarloaf Township, uh, which is now part of Carabas Valley, and they um, Norton was also on the board of uh, what we called the U.S. Eastern Ski Association. And the story goes that uh, a friend of his that was on the board with him owned a ski shop, and they were getting rid of a bunch of kids' skis. They were going to be, they were old, and and uh, they didn't really have any use for them in the in, in selling. So they were going to take them to the dump. And Norton said, "No, give them to us. We'll, we can put them to use." So, so Gene Luce, his wife, and Norton, they they got these skis, and they divvied them up between the two schools that were community schools up there at the time, Stratton and Kingfield, which were very small schools back then. They probably had 50 kids, K through 8. And uh, and then they talked the mountain into uh, giving them lessons. Uh, and Harry Baxter became uh, the head of the ski school then. And and so they, they started this program where the kids could share that equipment and come up and get a lesson at the mountain uh, and also get a hot chocolate and just have a great time. Then the skating component started later on after the outdoor center came in, the skating and the, and the cross-country skiing. Started after the, the outdoor center was built, which was about 75, I think it was somewhere around there. And uh, the, the mountain has done a great job. The ski school uh, is really into it. Uh, the, the instructors that work with the ski school that are involved in this program really love doing it because these kids are just, they're just, so great to work with and they're so excited about getting out of school for an afternoon and coming up and and uh, learning how to either ice skate or, or cross-country ski or snowboard or ski and so they they come up anywhere from four to six times during the ski season um, and they uh, ski for the whole afternoon basically they get rental equipment included uh, if, and what they do is the the rental shop operator Mike Buxton uh, is very enthusiastic about the program and he'll go down to, and visit now it's four schools Kingfield Stratton Phillips and Strong those are our, in our region up there and he goes down and measures the kids and fits them to boots and skis so that when they come up uh, in the winter time the first day they come everything's ready for them they've got it laid right out and a kid comes in and he sees his or her name on a pair of skis those are mine, you know. And say, so go over and they grab the stuff and they start putting it on and get ready for their for their lesson. And they, and when they take a break or at the end of the day, they have their hot chocolate and a cookie and get in the bus and go back home. Um, and it's just a great, great program. 
What's the aging, the age group of these children? The age group is, I think it starts with first grade, goes up to eighth grade. Yeah, the kindergartners, I don't think that they're doing it currently, uh, but they, they may be starting. I'm not 100% sure. So that. you'd have the opportunity, potentially, to learn multiple different things. So you could do cross-country, you could do skating, you could do alpine skiing. It's exactly over the course of years. Yep, they don't. In fact, during the year, they don't. They aren't. They don't have to stick with one thing. They could do cross country and then do an alpine experience. You know, on two different weeks. Uh, so they're not stuck just in one one sport. So, uh, and you know, this program helps. Like Mount Abram High School has a has a pretty good ski team, and also what they call the uh, uh, RSU uh, seven uh, fifty eight uh, district, uh, which is what is our district up there has a good middle school team too and those kids all got their start i always i look i look at a uh, a boy named sam morse who is uh, i think he's 20 now and he's on the u.s development alpine team and he started out skiing in the ski skate program out of kingfield when he was a kid he and his brother both did uh and so here he is um you know so there is a potential there uh, for, for kids that really grab a hold of the sport, there is other support for them along the way to help them. Because as we all know, skiing isn't inexpensive. It's not inexpensive. Um, but there is there is help for these kids that, that show promise, just like we just got done with the Olympics, you know, and those kids aren't all from wealthy families, and if they show promise, there's help for them to uh, attain their goals. So you're saying that once um, these kids get out of the ski skate program if they still are interested in doing um, the sport then there are other opportunities yes there uh, we uh, we have a, a foundation at Sugarloaf that's uh, you know the ski club is in charge of and we have different scholarship funds and some of these kids that are you know seven eight years old and they're in the ski skate program if they also you know if they really take a shine to it and they want to be in uh, an organized program that is a season-long program. The mountain has programs like called uh, mini cuffers, which is uh, like six, seven-year-olds, five, six, seven-year-olds. Uh, bubble cuffers, which is starts at eight or seven or eight and goes up. And then we also have what we call the CVA weekend program. And so all these programs, we scholar- we help scholarship them. So uh, kids who really want to be involved in those programs can apply for scholarships from, through the ski club and uh, get financial aid to help them with that. Um, How many um, kids do you think that you're helping every year? Well, the Ski Skate Program exposes probably 400 kids in the area, um, roughly. I think each of the elementary schools probably have 100 kids, roughly, in them. So that that's the exposure of that. Um, through our our scholarship programs for the other you know, weekend programs and stuff, we probably help another 50 to 60 kids each year. Uh, we give out about $30,000 right now a year in financial aid to uh, to youth that want to be in, in programs, whether it's just learn to ski a ride or, or competitive. When they get into the CBA weekend program, it becomes all about competition then. Uh, you know, ski racing, snowboard competition, freestyle. And how many kids do you think you've been able to impact over the years? Oh, thousands. <laughs> you know, 
really thousands. I've really never given it much thought as, other, as far as the numbers go, but I'd say, you know, thousands. Um, because the, the, uh, back when the, when the foundation was first formed for the club, it was in 1968, and, um, we, uh, Every kid that was in the program uh, was getting a for, some form of financial aid because we always ran a deficit that we had to make up. You know, the cost of the program uh, on purpose did not cover the whole cost of the of the thing. So, so we raised money to defray about twenty percent of the cost of the actual cost. Um, so, yeah, but yeah, thousands of kids over the fifty years, I'm sure. Um, so the ski skate program, it sounds like, is funded by um, Sugarloaf and also the foundation. Well, it's it's really it's funded by Sugarloaf. Sugarloaf is the is the real the Mountain Corporation is is the real uh, facilitator of it. Um, I mean, it's about five dollars a session per kid for lifts, lessons, rental equipment, hot chocolate, and a cookie. <laughs> The district, the schools, have to transport the kids up. What the ski club has been doing is uh, we started a, f- a fund specifically for the ski skate program, uh, and we named it after Norton Luce, actually. Uh, and we give some money to each of the four schools so that they can make their decisions within their schools to either buy clothing that can be shared amongst the the kids at their school because uh you know clothing is specific to skiing you know warm-up pants warm jackets i mean some of the kids who show up with you know uh, not proper mittens you know the cold weather's a, a big factor and, and ski clothing's not the cheapest kind of clothing to buy uh so they we give them money and they can use it for that or uh, they can also give uh they can give out that money to help defray the cost that five dollar cost to some of those kids that that can't afford the five bucks to, to come up. You, you know, it doesn't sound like a lot of money to us, but, you know, it does to a family that's uh, struggling to make, make ends meet. Um, so, and we, I, I'm not going to say that we have a huge impact on it yet, but we are working towards making it bigger and better. In fact, we, just as a, uh, the, the ski club, one of the projects I've been working on for 20 years is, is a new competition center and clubhouse. And that finally, uh, thanks to a generous donation from the Bill and Joan Alphon Foundation, uh, we were able to start the fundraising a year ago. And we, the total money raised was right around $2 million to build this new building. And it's, it's under construction right now. And we've been working on this for about 20 years. So that's kind of hampered our ability as a club to put as much money as we want to into scholarships. But now that that's... It's not finished yet, but it's behind us. You know, it's, it's a done deal. It's very exciting. Um, now our focus is going to be on really increasing this whole scholarship program we have. And one of our donors for the, uh, for the competition center um, also indicated that he wanted to help us with that program, the scholarship program, specifically uh, helping to make the skiing and riding a, a f- more affordable for local families. So, um, you know, in the Western Mountains of Maine. So we're very excited about that. Uh, so you'll be, hopefully I'll come back here another year and talk about how we've been able to raise a million dollars to, to uh, you know, really make it so everybody, every kid that wants to can get up there and do it, you know. 
Uh, and there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, things. It's not just the lift ticket of the equipment. It's transportation on a on a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, it's the warm clothing. You know, uh, all those all those components that have to get in there uh, to make it all happen. But it's all doable. And there are models around the country, uh, very successful models from other what I'd call ski towns like Jackson Hole area or or uh, oh, uh, Vail places like that where they've really made a big impact on the families of the local community, the families that work in the area and provide all the services that we need to have a recreation resort. On our show notes page, we will be sure to uh, put a link to information about the Sugarloaf Mountain Ski Club. I'm sure has a website that you'll provide to us. Yes. We've been speaking with Bruce Miles, who is the president of the Sugarloaf Mountain Ski Club, which helps support the Mountain Ski Skate Program. I really appreciate all the work that you're doing for, I was going to say kids in the state of Maine, but it sounds like a lot of these kids are kind of grown up. So you've, you've been making an impact for a while. So I appreciate that you've been doing this and you've been so dedicated to this and also that you've taken the time to come in and speak with me again. And we will have you back to talk about this, this new um, addition to the Sugarloaf Mountain. Thank you, Bruce. Well, thank you. Experienced chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobsterman bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Nancy Simmons, Elizabeth Hoy, and many more. For complete show details, please visit our website artcollectormain.com. As listeners of the radio know, Sugarloaf is one of my favorite topics of conversation. Well, I like Sunday River too, so I want to be careful there. I like the mountains, I like the skiing, and today we have a true fan of Sugarloaf, Tom Fremont-Smith, who has been with Bigelow Mountain Partners, LLC, owner of Winterstick, since making an investment in the company in 2001. As president, Tom guides the growth and development of Bigelow Mountain Partners and Winterstick, which makes snowboards at Sugarloaf. Thanks for coming in today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. See, so you've been doing some interesting things with Sugarloaf, but I want to actually go back a little ways because you actually have experience as a firefighter and an advanced EMT. Correct. That's very interesting. The the I don't know how one makes the progression from one to the next, but you must because you've lived it. Tell me about that. Um, well, for me, actually, so I it goes actually all the way back to my history at Sugarloaf. I uh, went to Carabasa Valley Academy. So being a CVA kid, um, I graduated in 91, and I, um, of course, had to pick a college that was near a ski area. And the U.S. Nationals the prior couple years had been in Crested Butte, Colorado, where the home of Western State. So uh, upon graduating from CVA, I went out and started living uh, in Gunnison, Colorado, and, and going to school at Western, and uh, the Butte was just half an hour up the road, 
And what you did for a pass is you go work for the mountain. And my first year, I was working as a uh, as a boot fitter, you know, in the rental shop, and then progressed to the repair room because that was kind of the natural progression. But I wanted to be on the ski patrol. Um, and for Crested Butte, it's a very uh, jagged, steep mountain. There's 112 known avalanche pass on the mountain, and uh, you have to be an EMT to work on that ski patrol. So I, uh, I basically became a, a, an EMT so that I could ski powder. Well, it, it seems like it's worked out okay for you because you've continued to be able to have this connection with the mountains really through your whole life. Yeah, yeah, it's correct. So I... Um, you know, from uh, becoming a, a wilderness EMT out there and then doing the whole avalanche control part of the job out there, which is different than, you know, being a ski patroller in, at, at Sugarloaf, um, you know, is, is, is trying because you, you might have more trauma, you know, because it is icy, hard mountain, you know, so all the, all the eastern ski areas. But out west, you, you add the avalanche control piece to it, and that is actually a really, really neat um, aspect of the job and learning snow science it's almost like archaeology in the snow I mean you you can if you dig a snow pit you get to watch every you can see every every uh, weather event that has happened throughout the entire year so you might see rotten snow from that happened in November down there at the bottom that's created this this weak layer in the snow so anyway it was um, something I really really enjoyed and and lived out there for about 10 years and um, um, and then when I came back east there was really only only one place I wanted to come back to and after two years in Boston uh, my wife and I uh, then girlfriend uh, now wife moved uh, back to Maine and we have been here since then since uh, 2000 so we're happy to be back in the state your wife, Leandra Fremont-Smith, actually does interior design, and she's often featured on the pages of Main Home and Design. So yes, yeah. You have a very interesting matchup there. Was yeah. There, was there a Sugarloaf connection? What was the? How did you guys get together? <coughs> you know, actually, our connections from um, is Mount, Mount Desert Island, um, and actually a bit of, a bit of Sugarloaf because my first roommate at CVA, um, his sister. Uh, his little sister, her best summertime friend was Leandra Collier. And so Leandra and I would bump into each other from time to time at different parties and um, or just gatherings. And, you know, but I, I, I was 18 and, you know, she was 14 or, you know, 14 and a half. So there was no, you know, I, I we didn't sort of travel in the same circles, but we knew each other. And uh, and then later on in life, when in our 20s, we bumped back into each other. And I said, oh, my, wow. Wow, she's cute. Maybe maybe she'll go out with me. And uh, so now, now a couple kids later, we're uh, and uh, we're 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 back here and um, and enjoying it. And she yeah, she's actually gets to be uh, um, on the pages of the of the magazine all the time. She's been having a great time doing her interior design stuff, and uh, yeah, it's been it's been fun for the two of us. One of the questions that we ask people when they come in is, is there a place in Maine that you love? You say all of it, but Acadia in late September. What is it about Acadia in late September that especially appeals to you? Um, we, everybody kind of knows about Acadia National Park, or at least most Mainers do, right? And uh, you, you, only, you get vacation time in, in July or August, but those months, it's beautiful up there, but it's just crowded, and I really like it when it is... Um, 
you know, there's sort of that, that fresh foliage uh, leaves laying on the ground. You get that pungent smell of the of the decaying leaves, and you're on those carriage trails, and there's not really the, all the only traffic that's up there at that time of year are, are blue hares in their in their RVs. So the trails are empty, the carriage roads are empty, and and you can just be out there, and you say thank you to to um, you know to the, to the founding. The founding fathers, you know, the Charles William Elliots and the then the uh, um, John D. Rockefellers and George Dorr and all those guys that started the started the park, and and in you can really sort of sense what it was like way back in the beginning when at that time of year because it's just it's just so quiet and and that's why I love it. You may also have especially loved Acadia this past September because. Before that, you had something really traumatic happen in your life—something very unexpected. I did, yeah. Um, I, uh, I actually had had myself a heart attack. Um, you know, I'm 43, uh, pretty fit, um, and Leander and I were actually mountain biking up uh, up on um, Acadia. July 11th, and I felt the squeezing sensation in my chest and. As an EMT, I, I, I sort of knew that it must be, you know, exercise-induced angina, which is you know, a fancy word for chest pain. And um, so we went to the ER, and they did an EKG, which was negative. Um, they did a troponin t- test in my blood to check for um, the enzyme or protein. That basically is the only thing. You know, the only time you'll find it in your blood is if you've actually had damage to your cardiac tissue. And uh, they did a second um, test just before they were about to release me because there was nothing on the EKG. And uh, the P- PA who was working in the ER that day said, oh, cool, well, congratulations, you've had yourself a heart attack. <laughs> and uh, it, was a, it was a total, total shock because I just uh, I couldn't believe that, you know, I, I was this sort of fit younger guy. And that she was telling me that I'd, I'd had a heart attack. And so the you know, next thing I know, I'm... Getting uh, um, uh, got to ride in there actually in the life in the life flight um, ground ambulance, which is actually a pretty nice ambulances. Any ambulances go, and I'm I'm usually not the patient. I'm you know I'm used to being in the back taking care of people, and this ambulance is pretty nice. So I was jealous of that, and uh, went up to Bangor, and they brought me to the cath lab, and um, I was actually joking with the cardiologist because they they give you. Um, you know, sort of a cocktail of medication so that you are comfortable, but you can still talk to the doctor. At least in my case, they kept me so that I, I could still communicate with them and I knew exactly what was going on. And and when he stopped joking with me about, you know, what we were seeing on the screen, I knew something was up. And he actually turned the screen to me and he said, well, you could see a clot here and a clot here. And it wasn't my first time in the cath lab because I brought patients too the cath lab before and the technician or the cardiologist was always nice enough to let us sort of sit in and look and see what our patients were having and uh yeah there they were four eighty uh, percent occluded coronary arteries so that's crazy at the age of 43 yeah no it was yes yes exactly for somebody that doesn't have any yeah. risk factors well that's the thing is i didn't realize I, I did have risk factors, but my family, we just didn't really talk about it that much. So my dad had a heart attack and a stroke. My uncle died on the tennis court 
from cardiac arrest. My grandmother had um, a valve replacement, and, and, and then after this happened to me, I found out that all my aunts and uncles are all in statins. So guess what? I did actually have it in my family, and I just didn't, didn't think that it would happen to me. I, didn't, you know, we, I knew that I had borderline high cholesterol, but my doctor and I decided that we, I would just, I would eat healthy, you know, plenty of uh, omega threes and um, exercise, you know, um, and you know, eating plenty of salmon and all those things that they tell you to do. And I was, I was doing them, and um, assumed that that was keeping me healthy, and it, it probably was. I mean, maybe things would have been worse had I not been doing all those other things. But the bottom line was, is they didn't. They, my, my, my heart didn't suffer any damage really um so that i got new plumbing and um and now when i'm on a statin you know and probably will be for the rest of my life and a baby aspirin and and uh i hope that i will be one of those people that actually ends up being in better shape on the other side you know cardiovascularly so we shall see and you chose to actually have open heart surgery versus having stents placed i did yeah um you know, I got some good advice from uh, from a friend of mine who is a cardiologist down here, actually at Maine Med, and um, you know, we were talking on the phone about it um, because there was another cardiologist who said, "Oh, we could fix this with stents. You know, we can just place the stent. You know, you'll be out of the hospital in a day, and you just have to be on Plavix. You know, and 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 so on. And and um, you know, the studies really show that. I mean, if you if you can if you are young enough. I guess the risk factor that he was worried about was, you know, you, you you do open heart surgery, you know, they stop your heart. You know, you're on the you're on the heart and lung machine for 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 in my case for five and a half hours. I was, you know, my heart was not pumping as they worked on it, um, and that's the risk. I guess that's why they would, you know, if you if 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 you're if you have risks, they would rather do the stents because you're going to have a better chance of waking up, you know, of, of, of not having a complication during open heart surgery. But we figured that um, I'm pretty active. My kids are active. My wife is active. We, you know, we have a second home at Sugarloaf, you know, that we enjoy a, a, a lot. And I didn't want to give up. I didn't want to be somebody else. I wanted to be me again. And so the best choice was to go and, um, and actually do the, the, uh, the open heart surgery really fix things so that I can get 40 years instead of 10. So that was, that was the decision behind that. And knock on wood, I, you know, I'm, I'm here talking to you now. So, so far so good. As part of this active life that you have, um, you have been making snowboards and promoting skiing and snowboarding at Sugarloaf and really anywhere that one would snowboard. How did you get involved with um, Bigelow Mountain Partners and Winterstick? So um, Bigelow Mountain Partners, or BMP, uh, was founded by two friends of mine that I also went to Carabasso Valley Academy with, Christopher Lorenz and Augustus Luckner. So uh, Gus and I were in the graduating class of 91 at CVA and Chris was uh, in 89. And those two had been working together as partners through um, the late late 1990s and they stumbled upon, uh, through another mutual friend, a snowboard brand. It was actually the the original snowboard brand. Winterstick was started in 1972 by a guy by the name of Dmitry Milovich. He uh, 
came up with the idea. He was an engineer and a surfer from Connecticut. And he, he had this idea to, to create a surfboard that would, wor- that would work on snow. And so the best place for him to do that would, was out in the Wasatch Mountains in Utah. And so Winterstick had um, sort of, well, I have, to, I have to sort of tell the story of Winterstick before I can tell my story with Winterstick. And so Dimitri started making these shapes in the early 1970s, and he patented, um, or actually trademarked the name Swallowtail uh, in 1972. And it basically was a, you know, a, a, a fish-shaped snowboard or surfboard um, that attached to your feet and you would ride powder on it and he made a few dozen of them through the early 70s and gave them off to friends he, he actually is famous famously uh, for um, calling the news media and saying well wow, there are these crazy kids up in big cottonwood canyon doing this i don't know what they're doing they're sliding on snow and you should get up there and so he after making the call he jumped in his van and ran up there so that he, he would be seen on these things the, the winter sticks and uh and it was actually called winter sticking in utah for many for many years all right right up right up into the up into the into the 80s when um as dimitri says and i, I actually had the opportunity to have lunch with him a couple of years ago He's the Jake Burton called him and said, "Hey, we're actually going to call this snowboarding now because at the time it was just Dmitry Milovich with Winter Stick, Tom Sims out in California with Sims snowboards, and Jake Burton who was putting metal edges on his. Um, you know, Jake was sort of going off of the idea of the snurfer, which had the rope in the front of it. So they, they were they were coming at these things totally differently. You know, Jake was really building a a, a, a more of a type of a ski." that had edges on it for skiing hard snow. Dimitri was building a surfboard to ride in powder. And Tom Sims was, was doing a, a sort of a snow skateboard and was more into the half pipe and that, t- and that type of thing. So, um, so my, anyway, my two partners had got involved with um, Winterstick when it had, just, it, was, it had just gone through a bankruptcy. And um, they ended up um, uh, rescuing the brand with Bigelow Mountain Partners, RLLC, and that's just when I had come back from Crested Butte. I wanted to stay in the ski industry. Leander was finishing up school, actually, at Harvard, the extension school in Boston. And um, so I ended up um, partnering with, uh, with Chris and, um, and Gus to help save this iconic snowboard brand. And I've been involved ever since. It's been an interesting year for you. Or at least an interesting <laughs> summer, let's yeah, say. Yeah. And you have two children, yeah. daughter and a son. It's always the sort of thing, I don't know, when I was diagnosed with cancer in my early 40s and I had no risk factors either. And that really kind of shifted my perspective on things and really caused me to think, all right, well, what do I really want to do next? And what do I want to, am I going in the direction I want to go in? Did that happen for you? And if so, did you gain any insights from this? Uh, you're asking me from from the injury, you know, from July 11th of this year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know what? I think it's too soon to be to be honest. I mean, I, when I first came home from the hospital, I was like, a, it was like a, almost eu- euphoric. I had been sitting in at MGH because I went down to Boston for the surgery. Um, 
And I, I really was looking around, just being, I am so happy, and oh, I, I don't care if anything happens to me today because I've, I've, I've made it one more day. And so since then, I've sort of gotten back into the old circle of like, just you know, you just you're just working, and um, you know, and taking care of your kids, and you know, packing lunches, and going to soccer practice, and lacrosse practice, and and our lives are extremely complicated now, uh, not just mine and my wife's, but all of us. You know, I, you know, every every parent I know um, is getting pulled in twenty five different directions with their children and their careers and you know, their health, and and so um, it hasn't really sunk in with me on on on, um, on on a on a major change. But I will tell you that you know we are. I guess I was already a pretty healthy individual, so for, for maybe for me, it's not going to change things too much. I just want to be able to get back to the point where I can go ride my mountain bike up at Sugarloaf, you know, and and play you know some tennis with with my kids because they're starting to be able to hit the ball, you know, and uh, and Leander's a hell of a player, you know, so she's it's fun to go out here, go out there and get whipped by her on the you know on the on the tennis court or or ski, you know, the the the, the backcountry uh, snowboarding and skiing because I, I I ski and I snowboard. Um, I just want to be active. I just want to be me again, and that's and that's and that's why I chose the, the open heart surgery because I knew that if ta- after talking to the doctors and they said you know we can really fix this and you will just be like a normal individual aside from the, the you know the, the the pain of the of the um, surgery with your chest which hap- you know which lasts for a month or so um, you know you'll 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 be back and. Um, so I guess I rambled a little bit, but really what I wanted, what, I, what I'm trying to say is I, I just want to continue to be me and be active. One of the things that um, that has been kind of a theme for you is your relationship with Leandra and the fact that, you know, you both have sort of grown together over the years and you've grown into now this having this family. How do you support one another in your very different business interests? Um, you, I mean, you, you have to be, there has to be a lot of give and take. Um, you know, we're, we're a little bit like ships passing in the night sometimes where I'll need to be up to Sugarloaf. We just, we just completed a, uh, we, we actually just built a factory up at Sugarloaf for Winterstick. So Winterstick hadn't, um, owned its own manufacturing since Dimitri had been building his boards in Utah back in the 70s. So now we have our own factory up at Sugarloaf. And so that, that makes me, I, I need to be up there a couple of days a week. And um, Leandra is either usually with a, you know, with a, with a client and she's got a lot of clients in the Boston area or up on Mount Desert Island and then to her own clients here. So the two of us are on the road a lot. And, um, we um so it it does take a lot of a lot of give and take so that we can both get what we need to get done for our jobs but at the same time be there for our kids be there for each other and i think that's why we um we bought this place up at sugarloaf because it's a place that the four of us all can just be together you know we're, we're we're outdoors and um or indoors could be 40 below when blowing them we don't feel like going up on the hill but we've got our space you know we've got our little our little camp that is ours um, and it's and it's our time as a family and and I think that that's 
really really important for people in this in the you know in these days of, of just everybody being pulled in so many different directions so um, that's how we've been doing it and so far it's been working I've been speaking with Tom Fremont Smith who has been with Bigelow Mountain Partners LLC which is owner of Winterstick um, since making an investment in the company in 2001, as president, Tom guides the growth and development of Bigelow Mountain Partners and Winter Stick, which makes snowboards at Sugarloaf. He is also married to Leandra, father of two, and survivor of major heart trauma this summer. And we're really glad that you're with us still. And, and we're really glad that you do as much as you do to contribute to Maine and the Sugarloaf community. So thank you for that, and thank you for coming in. Great. Thanks very much. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 271, Sugarloafing. Our guests have included Bruce Miles and Tom Fremont-Smith. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our sugarloafing show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, the Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy, and our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Here's an excerpt from next week's interview with Gabe Weiss on Love, Maine Radio. I think that you raise a really important point, and having lived in Yarmouth off and on for decades. I mean, you're right. It's, it's not all doctors and lawyers and high-income earning people. I mean, there's a broad range of people. And sometimes I believe that people who live in Yarmouth who don't have, they don't have parents who are making a lot of money, I think sometimes it can be really hard for them. And they can feel really disadvantaged within that school system. So it sounds like that's a discussion that you've been having recently at the education foundation level. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. What is it about your background in, in law that makes you interested in this? Well, I don't know if it's uh, the background in law necessarily, although law is uh, highly academic pursuit so um, I've just done a lot of school <laughs> and uh, so in that sense I know about education systems I've also spent part of my um, my educational career academic career um, in Europe so I have that perspective as well uh, and again you know growing up the son of two professors um, it, it's just a, a big part of me um, I, I think that more what it is um, is that the legal profession in Maine 
uh, when, especially when I first uh, moved back to Maine, I was working at one of the law firms in town. Um, the law firms in Maine, I think, do a wonderful job getting their associates involved in the community. Um, before I came back to Maine, I was working at large New York law firms where the expectation was just to sit at your desk and bill as many hours as possible. Um, we were not made aware of opportunities in the community, and we were not encouraged um, to go out and get involved. Whereas uh, when I started at the law firm in Maine, um, it was made clear to me right away that I needed to go find uh, organizations, boards to join, um, and that was really a part of my work. And so um, being given that, uh, that encouragement and the opportunity to go out and, and find what in the community uh, looked like a good uh, community service endeavor for me um, was really just such a great opportunity. I was able to you know, do a little looking into what was in Yarmouth and found the Education Foundation, and um, it was just a, a, a good situation, I think. Now as the president of the Yarmouth Education Foundation and previously um, working on the board, what have you what have you been surprised by? What have you learned that you really didn't think that you would learn going into it? Well, I've learned uh, first that um, you know it, it's a very competitive world and um, school systems outside of Maine uh, and outside of the U.S. Um, really are pushing the limits of education um, and we can always be doing more. So when we get applications for um, grants in the STEM field, um, you know, biology, uh, those, you know, we feel are critical and, you know, our mission is to uh, fund things that are outside of the school curriculum, but you start to wonder, well, if should this be outside of the school curriculum, or should this actually, you know, be something that every student is learning, and, and, and why are they not? Why does it have to come through as a, as a grant application? Um, well, I mean, we're very fortunate in Yarmouth to have such great teachers who think of these things, who are out there listening to conferences about education and new things in education and bringing these forward. Um, but I think that really, you know, the, the importance of, uh, of giving the students these opportunities um, is, is, can't be ignored. Um, the other thing I've learned is how somewhat political all of this can be. Um, and so it, you have to be very diplomatic in how you interact with um, teachers and administrators uh, and parents. Well, explore that a little bit for me. Why such a need for diplomacy? What, what is it the, that so um, brings, I don't know, emotions to the surface or strong thoughts about or feelings about the subject? Well, um, in Yarmouth, people pay a high rate of tax, property tax, uh, and so they're going into it already saying, well, we, you know, we, we've already given a lot so that our children can go to this wonderful school system. The Yarmouth Education Foundation goes out and says, can you give a little more? So we're soliciting money in the community. Uh, then we have to be really good stewards of this money and think very hard about how to give it back. 
in the form of the grants that we make. Uh, and so you have teachers who come forward with applications and I know, uh, you know, from my experience that being a teacher is very time consuming and it, it's hard to prepare a nice grant application when you're teaching and grading papers and doing all these other things, not to mention you have your own family. And so sometimes a grant proposal comes to us. Thank you for listening to Love, Maine Radio. We hope you can join us for next week's program.